Hey, welcome back to this season of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, where we bring you the audio files from the DocSF Experience 2022. I'm Dr. Stefan Obini, your host for this podcast and the founder and chair of the Digital Orthopedics Conference, San Francisco. This last talk on the first day of DocSF 2022, we're joined by Daniel Kraft. He talked about the future of health, looking at 10 years back and 10 years forward. Now, Daniel is a founder of Exponential Medicine, the founder of Digital.Health, the chair of the XPRIZE Pandemic and Health Alliance, and a noted visionary and futurist. I think you'll really enjoy this lecture, which really served as an ignition point for us to move on to the following day. With that, let's join Dr. Daniel Kraft on the stage of DocSF in San Francisco. So the next piece that we are going to listen to, Daniel Kraft is a colleague of mine that I get to spend a whole lot of time listening to him share really wonderful stories, synthesizing how all of these interesting technologies weave together, show up in, in your back pocket, on your wrist. I love how he, every time that there is a new type of a device or a new type of wearable, he's the first one to own it, to try it, to tweet about it, to share his data about all of it. And what he's really good at doing is when you take all these different technologies and you focus on the technology, he's really good in synthesizing how that fits into work, how to life and, and practice. And I was really looking forward to having him here until last night at about 10 when he texted a picture of a COVID positive. So he put together a presentation for us. And one of the things that's always been fun working with Daniel, wherever we go to different places, people will always say to me, he talks so fast, you need to help him slow down. I said, man, we are on an exponential curve here. So my suggestion is you just listen a lot faster. So with that, if we can go ahead and roll his video and then I'll be back when he's done. Greetings from the future. Thanks so much to Stefano and Shauna and the DocSF team for the kind invitation. While I'm coming from the future, I'm also stuck a bit in the past. And yesterday, unfortunately, I I got one of these fun results, which you can probably almost read. So unfortunately, I'm sequestered for a few days at the tail end of this hopefully COVID pandemic. So coming to you virtually, and I'm really feeling fortunate to get a chance to take a dive into the cutting edge and the not so distant future, let's say the 15 year future of orthopedics and beyond. So I'm going to start to get set up on my slides here and want to sort of take you on a, a look to the past uh, and a look going forward into 2037 and hopefully beyond. And I've sort of become a bit of an accidental futurist. About 10, 11 years ago, I actually gave my second TED Talk, Medicine's Future. There's an app for that. At the time, there were only about 25,000 apps. Uh, and that sort of, sort of laid the stage of what might happen over the next decade. And I'm happy to say a lot of that has come true. And part of the theme of that talk and looking into the future was to think about technology as it accelerates, gets faster, cheaper, smaller, more available, particularly at its convergence. And not just about digital, but all the layerings of AI, robotics, 3D printing, nanotechnology, blockchain, and beyond, much of you've been, what you've been talking today and, and exploring at DocSF. You know, and, and in the last 10, 20 years, we've gone exponentially from what used to fit on a desktop to now you know, FDA-cleared medical smartwatches that can provide medical diagnostics and feedback. And of course, it's this overlapping of fields and mindsets that brings us into this new age of digital connected and mobile health. In fact, in creating entire new fields that didn't exist 20 something years ago when I was a Stanford medical student from digital therapeutics to 
AI meets radiology to robotic surgery to virtual reality meets medicine and beyond. So we have an interesting lens to help look at this future. I've been lucky to have founded and chair a program called Exponential Medicine over the last decade with a lot of help from Shauna Butler and others. We're now rebooting and rebranding that conference. We'll launch that again in, in 2023. But the thematics are to bring people from all sorts of fields together to look at this fast-going future and help us move from where we have been stuck in the past, intermittent, reactive, sick care to a true future of personalized, proactive, continuous, uh, and often AI-enhanced healthcare in orthopedics and musculoskeletal disease and beyond. But, you know, we're still stuck sometimes in the past. You know, I like to call the era still a facts-based medicine. When I go back to visit Mass General Hospital, where I trained in medicine and pediatrics, or down the street where I'm based at Stanford, we're still using fax machines to communicate, still stuck on paper forms. I had my own cardiac study done recently. I could only get my results on a CD-ROM. I don't even own a CD-ROM player anymore. So in some ways, we're still stuck, you know, in the old modalities of the past. And it's our opportunity to get outside of our old framework of waiting rooms and the sort of silos in which we define healthcare into this new connected multiomic genomics age and to start to often combine the insights and data to make that truly integrated to no matter what specialty or practice or setting you might be in. So the COVID pandemic has highlighted the fact that while many fields have reached the fourth industrial age, how we do our banking and get our entertainment, et cetera, healthcare sort of been stuck in the third industrial age. And COVID in many ways has been the chief transformation officer to really stirred things up and accelerated movement going forward. And I'm a bit of an optimist, whether I have COVID or not. I like to think of just like Sputnik set off the space age, COVID is sparking a bit of a new health age. And I think what we're talking about here at DocSF, North Orthopedics and Beyond is really opening up mindsets and possibilities to really take us into this new sort of holy golden age. Just like after uh, the 20, sorry, 1918 pandemic, we had the roaring 20s. I think we're gonna enter this new fascinating era of the 1920s and 1930s. So 10 years after that 2011 TED talk last year, I gave another TED talk about how COVID transformed the future of healthcare and medicine, along with thematics, how it's accelerated diagnostics and therapeutics and crowdsourcing trials and beyond. And some of that is taking us to this 15-year future of 2037. So I like to use the framing of that TED talk from 10 years ago and the one from basically last year as a way to look back 10 years and now on the theme of Doc SF year, this year, 15 years forward. Though before we go 15 years forward, let's just remind ourselves where we were 15 years ago, right? Um, there's this great quote from Bill Gates, most people tend to overestimate what they can do in one, one year and underestimate what they can do in 10 years, let alone 15 years. And 15 years ago, 2007, right? That was the year famously that the iPhone was launched. At the time, Nokia was the king of cell phones and mobile. Uh, the flip phone razor was out there. That was the year that Netflix had their first streaming service. Twitter just broke out onto the market. And Facebook had just surpassed their first 20 million users. That was 2017. That same year, Google bought YouTube for a whopping $1.6 billion, chump change. IBM Watson launched in 2007, and MySpace hit a 65 billion market value cap. At the same time, Airbnb was launched. So a lot's happened in the last 15 years. And I think the next 10 and 15 years will make the last 10 years or so look slow. So it's an opportunity to create that new future. So what is this future of medicine? I was lucky to write uh, the opening article for Nat Geo's future medicine issue about two years ago. And it wasn't really about 12 innovations that were reshaping a revolution in the future of medicine, but how multiple technologies are coming together. And one of those, of course, is the realm of omics. At the beginning of my 2011 TED Talk, I told the story of meeting Harriet, who's a very distant cousin. We were introduced by one of the co-founders of 23andMe. We shared a similar haplotype. 
We started our own Facebook group for haplotype K1A1B1A. And that was still the early innings. Very few people had done 23andMe. Very few folks had even been sequenced. And since then, of course, we're really entering this genomic age, which has enabled us to see the price of sequencing drop at twice the rate of Moore's law from about $10,000 10 years ago to less than $300 arguably today. And in the next decade, 2031, 2037, I think we'll be at the $25 genome or less. We'll be at a long read sequencing. It's going to become fast and frequent. Uh, Stanford colleagues just published earlier this year that they could go from a blood sample and a newborn to a full sequence in basically five hours. And we'll start using polygenic risk scores to start measuring ourselves and optimizing the care pathways for each of us on really genomic-based levels and beyond. So beginning innings still, we're still a little bit, a little bit slow out of the gate, but omics is only going to accelerate. And of course, it goes beyond the genome. The proteome, you know, well beyond the Chem 20 to be the Chem 1000 will be here. The exposome, you're going to know where your patients have lived and what they've been exposed to. The metabolome, the interactome, the sociome, all these elements might be integrated into our smart medical records. And of course, the microbiome is becoming more and more powerful as we understand its role in everything from obesity to inflammatory bowel disease to neurologic disorders. So the challenge will be to layer all these omics up. Eric Topol has framed this nicely in an article from last year in Nature. You know, we'll have the idea of that digital twin where we can use these multi-omics to predict and model each individual's optimal health and wellness regimen, how to diagnose early, and then management, whether it's for an orthopedic issue or a neurologic or mental health one, how to best tune that therapeutic into the future and to keep learning and building up and improving upon that digital model. Digital twin, which has been probably already overused here in 2022, I think will really start to strike reality in 10 years from now and 15 years out. And we'll all have access to our own digital twin to use in unique and powerful ways. In my field of oncology, we're already starting to use that model to start understanding tumors at their molecular and genetic level and drive truly N equals one therapeutics. Now, of course, a lot of these technologies thematically are running at an exponential rate. Um, just to remind you at the, the famous example of Moore's Law, which is why my iPhone 2, which I still have from 2011 or so, is felt pretty amazing in 2011. Now, when it still runs, it feels slow and clunky. My iPhone 13 will be antique in 10 years, certainly 15. And, you know, and Moore's Law is progressing. We're starting to run out of the ability to fit the physics of a transistor on a chip. So quantum computing is coming next. But, you know, this ability to compute and digitize really has transformed the world in the last decade and certainly will accelerate going forward. It means many elements become basically dematerialized. You don't buy a smartphone GPS, separate GPS unit or a video camera, all, they've all become appetized. That democratizes who and where we can use these devices and really can democratize and spread them around the world almost instantaneously. And of course, on the theme of the smartphone, we sort of think we have the best of the ability uh, today, but soon we'll see the soon rumored augmented reality, Apple and Google glasses, which will truly give us truly augmented interaction, which has many, many health applications. The evolution of VR tech, certainly, certainly playing a big role in, in the training in orthopedics and beyond has certainly moved at an exponential rate. 10 years ago, I visited my friend at the state-of-the-art VR lab at Stanford from Jeremy Valenson. That was $2 million worth of technology. Now that fits on a $200 or less headset. And we're not just, of course, ending the, the metaverse, but we're ending the metaverse, I should trademark that. And we're seeing that kind of come to our contact lenses. We'll soon see AR, VR come to our contacts, which will give us applications for exercise in the operating room and beyond. So just a reminder to think exponentially. It's often hard to appreciate the pace of change, but things are moving and quantum computing, again, will be here certainly in reality by 2037. So let's go back a bit to today and what's possible now and what might be coming next. Of course, the smartphone 
has evolved uh, dramatically. Some of you remember uh, in the 80s, he's using a, a smartphone on the beach that seemed incredible. Now they're ubiquitous and all these tools that many of us grew up with in the pre-digital age have become digitized. 10, 11 years ago, we had the very first devices that would attach to a smartphone for diagnostics, the IBG Star. 10, 11 years ago, Dave Albert came out, the first very basic uh, version of the AliveCore, an EKG that you can attach to your smartphone. Now you see ads for the AliveCore on CNN and you can buy them uh, directly as a consumer medical device on Amazon. And now there are six lead versions that are out and beyond. So we're seeing this evolution of consumer FDA cleared medical tech that felt kind of uh, very, very novel 10 years ago, but will feel the norm and will be embedded into our clothes and environments in the decade ahead. Common measures like blood pressure will no longer require us using cuff. We're seeing the evolution of the first devices that will give us seamless 24 seven blood pressure from a patch or a wearable device, which will be, will be useful for pre-op care in hospital and post-op recovery. And even we sometimes underappreciate the sensors that are on our you know, smart devices of today. They're far beyond this, the camera on the microphone. The app using our exponential cameras can uh, help you with your yoga or physical therapy, or they can be used to pick up vital signs seamlessly. The camera can pick up heart rate, blood pressure, oxygen saturation. So several examples now of where you don't need to wear anything to track the vitals of a patient uh, in almost any location. And of course, the medicalized smartphone has some pretty novel applications, whether you're trying to look in your kid's ear to check for an otitis media or an effusion, or uh, you're doing post-op wound care. You know, the, uh, it, basically the LIDAR on our phones now has been developed to look at wounds, for example. And I can imagine this being part of post-op care, whether for none of you will have post-op wound infections, but some might to better optimize and sometimes not require that face-to-face -face visit uh, of a wound inspection. We're already seeing examples, what's often called the medical selfie. I'm on the board of an Israeli company called Healthy.io, which can enable you simply to you know, dip your urine at home, take a picture with your smartphone or any camera, basically under any lighting, and have your, your analysis results back immediately. Great for tracking a potential UTI or preeclampsia or patients who might have high risk for early kidney disease. You can screen for that at home, and that's already being rolled out at the NHS and through some blues plans. So simple, low-cost diagnostics to improve proactive care. Other things that go in the measurable space that don't require any sort of wearable is voice. You can tell from my voice right now, it's not very optimal, but voice can be a biomarker for neurologic disease, for heart disease, for COVID. Is that the sound of a, of a common cold cough, a croupy cough, <clears throat> or a coronavirus cough that I might actually have at the moment? That's going to become part of our analytics going forward. And what's getting exciting today is that now with the new versions of uh, operating systems, we can now see that we can integrate this data and share it, whether it's your smart scale or your uh, smart patch or your glucometer. All these will become much more available to share with your family members and with our fellow clinicians. So of course, we're in the age of, of wearables. I'm wearing what? Two smart rings, my Aura ring, the Circle ring, a Whoop, an Apple Watch, and a few other things. What's interesting about wearables in 2022 and where they certainly will be by 2037 is they're not just consumer devices, they can start to measure almost every element of physiology and behavior. And just a few examples of what's here now, obviously the sensor going beyond the wrist to inside a medication to track adherence, smart digital tattoos and patches. You might someone send someone home from the OR with a, a digital tattoo to last for a week or a month. We're seeing the integration of wearables that can track intercompartmental pressure, which might be useful in post-op monitoring all the way to the sensors that are going to be more and more integrated into your orthopedic implants to check for their health and beyond. Sometimes a, a welt, a belt, this is the wearable welt out of Korea, can track how much you're eating, but also your gait. So you might find problems in a patient 
after a procedure just from their wearable belt, or that could be useful in understanding what and when they might need a, a total hip replacement or total knee replacement and their risk for falls. There's now the development of 3D printed scoliosis braces as a wearable that can enable them to be stylish and tracked over time so that you're not only uh, 3D printing and personalizing a wearable, let's say for scoliosis, but they can be embedded with sensors to determine how and when they're being worn. For those of us who often don't have great posture, especially those wearing lead in the operating room, we're the, already in the advent of, of uh, trainables, devices like the upright device uh, have been out for a while, but can enable you to track your own posture or potentially the posture of your patients and leverage that in pre-op and post-op care to optimize and track the back, uh, the health of their back and give them a nudge if they need some uh, integration. Now, again, on this exponential, think about all the technology that fits into this sort of magical aura ring with a battery that almost lasts a month. If you guys do nothing else with wearable data, start to track your sleep, maybe the sleep of your friends, family, and patients. That has such a big impact on risk for disease and recovery. And of course, these sorts of wearable devices now can even be used to pick up pregnancy six days before a home pregnancy test. Or in a study done with UCSF, Aura was using these Aura and UCSF showed that they could determine your titer after a COVID vaccine booster based on your changes in heart rate variably, HRV, heart rate, temperature, and respiratory rate. So really interesting ways to look at overall health and response to disease with simple wearable devices. And the wearables are getting more complex. This one from BioIntelligence gives you 16 different markers, basically intensive care unit level of data that can be streamed 24-7 anywhere you have internet connectivity. So our pre-op, during-op, post-op care can be much more smartly monitored. And of course, it doesn't take fancy sensors. It can be a low-cost, non-FDA-clear device. I love the work from Stefano Bini and others. Uh, you've probably shown this chart already, but a simple Fitbit can show whether a patient's doing better after a total hip replacement or, or knee surgery, or they're not doing so great. And if they're not doing so well, you can intervene, hopefully early before they have a fall. And I think this convergence of all sorts of biosignal monitoring will really play a role in management of musculoskeletal disease going forward. So don't think about it as just the wear of all the risks, but this convergence of all sorts of analytics that will get, let you, allow you to do smart prevention, earlier diagnostics, and then optimized therapy. And I think that's a whole brave new world to explore. Certainly by 2037, this is going to increasingly be embedded into our smart socks, our clothing, and our smart internet and medical things environments. It will really give us this ability to, to give an early ping to your patient when you can see from their digital biomarkers that something's a little bit off before they have that fall or stroke or other problem. Now, wearables are certainly getting interesting to enable the disabled. We've seen exoskeletons enable uh, the paralyzed to walk. We're seeing exoskeletons come and enable the, or to super enable uh, each of us. I think we're going to start to see exoskeletons uh, commonly used in rehab for folks who have muscle weakness or post-op in recovery. This whole new generation of, of, of bionics blending with biology. Many of you know my friend Hugh Hurst, a professor at MIT Media Lab. He's a double amputee. He's developed amazing next generation uh, bionics, but he's going beyond that, uh, this idea of not just exoskeletons, but to exo boots to enable the normal folks or folks who need a little extra help, um, they're developing these in pretty interesting ways. Again, these aren't for folks who've had uh, amputations, but can enable someone, I think, in rehab, or increasingly they, they, see, they see these through his new spin-out called Defy to be worn by normally abled folks, to super enable us to do longer runs, et cetera. So this whole blending of exobionics, uh, whether it's a boot or for upper extremities or beyond, again, is getting super interesting and I think will play a role in orthopedics and beyond in, in pretty exciting ways. So watch that space. It's going to become pretty exciting. And again, it's blending multi-exponential type technologies to make this uh, a reality.
One of my favorite wearables that does have some relation to medicine would be, let's say, a jet suit. They're sort of in early development today. They're even being piloted to see if they can be used for doing rescue in the mountains for emergency medical rescue. I got to try flying one of these myself. It was a little harder than it looked. I kind of got the hang of it. I was tethered, but most of the time, uh, most of the time I looked like this. So uh, the ultimate wearable uh, for those of us who like to fly. Back to sensing for a second. As I mentioned, we're going to be going away from wearables to the fact that our smart homes using Wi-Fi and beyond can start to pick up our vital signs. And that means we can do some interesting things. There's some privacy issues for sure, but hopefully a decade from now, those will be sorted out and we'll be able to understand our digital exhaust in context. And we'll start to narrow down from the 350,000 apps. Remember, there were about 25,000 10 years ago. Now there's 350,000 plus digital health related apps. And we start to integrate them because no one wants to have an app for their orthopod and for their mental health and for their diet. We need to start to integrate them kind of like the, the one ring to rule them all. So I think we're seeing, you'll see a fair amount of consolidation over the next couple years and decade to make these integrated and really personalized platforms for the individual and the clinician and start to really make sense in the next decade or so of, of the digitome in context of the individual. Now, 10 years ago, when I gave that TED Talk, imaging was already pretty interesting, but moving rapidly. And now we're seeing imaging play lots of roles, even in a proactive sense. You can use brain imaging to predict who's likely to get dementias, and hopefully then we can intervene early. Here's my own brain coming with an MRI-based color coding. And now we're seeing the advent of several companies offering full-body MRI scans for less than 2000 US dollars. The scans are about 45 minutes. They're read with the help of AI. In 10, 15 years, I think you'll go to your local Walmart or CVS Minute Clinic and get a full-body scan read by the AI radiologist, which will be useful for screening for many diseases uh, and also play a role potentially in orthopedic uh, endeavors. And these scanners and imaging are getting cheaper and more available. This is the Hyperfine mobile MRI device. It's less than 10 times or 20 times less expensive than a current MRI machine. I was on a boat on the Hudson River last fall. I got to have my own brain MRI in five minutes while plugged into wall power with one of these devices. Not a, not a five Tesla machine, but half a Tesla, but in five minutes, I could get imaging done, which I can imagine you might have in your clinic in the next few years to play a role in doing diagnostics and managing therapy. And companies like Open Water by Mary Lou Jepson and others are bringing imaging to wearable tech devices. While they're starting with the brain, they're going well beyond that uh, to other elements, which I think will play a role in orthopedics. So in, in 10, 15 years, you may be suddenly strapping on an open water tech device onto your patient's knee or shoulder and getting incredible uh, imaging insights for very low cost. Now, a lot of us, of course, want to expand our ability to do diagnostics. And now we have a whole new set of digital tools. These are some examples on my desk in my digital doctor's bag. I think what is the best example of all of these is they get to up-level our ability. I was never very good at listening to heart sounds. I'm sure many of you aren't as, as either. But now like the echo stethoscope built with AI uh, stethoscope and EKG can enable us all to sort of be up-level to be a good cardiologist in terms of diagnosing murmurs. Or what used to be a $20,000 ultrasound device now is available as the butterfly, you know, uh, democratizing where and how diagnostics can be done. And I think 10, 15 years ago from now, these will be in everybody's pocket and give pretty incredible imaging enhanced with AI anywhere on the planet. And I think this democratizes care. Companies like Ilara Health are taking these sorts of low-cost diagnostics of today and bringing them to clinics in Kenya and around Africa to sort of bring this digital diagnostics pathway. And as the internet access and digital opens up to more markets, this opens up markets for where orthopedic procedures and others can be done in healthy and fast ways. 
So what does this bring the future of many fields? We know about the challenges of uh, augmenting the radiologist or dermatologist or pathologist. We're going to see by 2037 that the AI is leading the way in pathology for as well. It's going to start augmenting our friends in gastroenterology. They might see a lesion that might have been missed. It's going to be identified with the AI. AI will be embedded into many of our toilets. Ins and outs will be measured for many of us at home with a smart camera, maybe with a smart toilet seat that can do EKG and blood pressure. Maybe not pretty, but it's going to be part of our care. So of course, the off-term phrase, AI is not going to replace the clinician, the orthopedist, the pharmacist, the nurse, but those using AI will replace those who don't. And of course, it can up-level many others, a community health worker, your nurse practitioner, to do things that the up the most highly skilled clinician doesn't want to do and can bring some of those abilities again to areas of the world that don't have it. So the diagnostics of 2031 or 2037, I think will sort of be minority report-like. We're going to start to see things early rather than late. Now, back again to the theme of, of digital health in this conference. Digital health has certainly accelerated over the last 10 years and will continue to do so. I think we won't call it digital health anymore. It'll just be called health. But you can see the advent and just interest over time based on searches. And I like to think about digital health not as just a bunch of wearables or AI, but the ability to take all this new data and really integrate it and make sense of it and personalize it to the individual or clinician or healthcare system. And of course, the field has opened up. There's now uh, UCSF, Stanford have digital programs. There's digital health-related journals. People are publishing more and more. We're starting to see the advent of digital therapeutics where instead of describing a device or a medication, you prescribe the app for smoking cessation or anxiety or for ADHD. And so the world of the digital therapeutics is still in its early days, but the idea of an app to go along or supplant the need for a drug or with a device or with an implant will become very, very commonplace. And I've got a new venture fund, early seed stage fund. We're seeing a ton of invention and innovation in the digital health space. And many of that's coming from folks outside, of course, of traditional healthcare. So if you see, see great seed stage investments, uh, send them my way. Now, one of the challenges even today is keeping up with the innovation of 2022, let alone the innovation of 2037. And with the thousands and thousands of apps, some are relevant to orthopedics, how do we find the ones that are best for you to use or for your patients? So I've been trying to address that problem with a platform that I've been building called digital.health. That's the URL, easy to remember. We've been doing that in collaboration with UCSF Health Hub. And basically it's a platform to learn about the cutting edge and leverage digital health. We're about to launch the formal version. If you like a sneak peek, go to, go to beta.digital.health. Essentially, one of its core features is a, a digital formulary for trying to find diagnostics. You might look up the AliveCore device and understand its features and rate it and be able to save it in your own formulary and prescribe it to a patient. You might be managing a patient with type 2 diabetes and looking at interventions, for example, uh, like uh, diet and nutrition intervention, like the Verda app, and be able to prescribe that. And hopefully that will eventually be covered by an insurance payer and reimbursed and integrated into your workflow. There's also, of course, if you look up lots of orthopedics-related interventions and platforms and solutions already on beta.digital.health. So if you have one of your own, please go there, uh, sign up, add your own company and solution. Uh, and hopefully it'll help folks find you uh, going forward. Now, one of the challenges with our digital era and wearables and apps, et cetera, is they create lots and lots of data, which is still confusing to us because our brands can't improve upon their 2 million year old uh, architecture while our AI and other platforms keep improving. So we need to we need a little help. I love this cartoon from my exponential medicine conference. What is it, Doc? You're generating too much data, says the doctor. We don't want the data, we want the insights. And I think this future of digital health is, you know, go beyond 
the wearable, the sensor, et cetera, to make sense of it and integrate it smartly into our workflow. And we all know the challenges with workflow. We're seeing some possible help, but we know the burnout that's incurred from challenges with workflow and too much data and challenges of our opportunity and challenges to design the solutions of the future so they really improve the clinician experience going forward. And we're seeing some steps, Care Studio by Google is sort of reformatting a lot of the EMR data to make it more Google-esque. And I think the UIs will only continue to improve and become more seamless. And we'll use things like NLP to help write our notes for us. That these are already coming to market. So less time doing data entry and more time with face-to-face -face care. Now, of course, AI has been a topic already discussed today at DocSF. I like to think of it as more as IA, intelligence augmentation. And we need to realize that there's always been some hype, right? 10, 11 years ago, IBM Watson was going to be the bomb. It had a lot of hype around beating the Watson uh, game, and it didn't quite pan out. They probably spent more on their marketing than the technology set. But that doesn't mean we're not going to see this brave new world of AI hit. I think we know about Moore's law. You need to remember also Amara's law. We tend to overestimate the effect of technology in the short term and underestimate the effect in the long term. So as we look to 15 years ahead, even 10 years ahead, don't underestimate, particularly on the exponential of what's possible, because AI is really starting to hit its stride. You've had examples already today. It's being used to give heads up in terms of who might be getting septic or at risk for a fall. It's being used in pretty exciting ways with GPT-3. So if you haven't checked out OpenAI or OpenAI.com, the ability to ask the computer to write a program for you or write music or do art uh, or maybe do pre-operation planning is all becoming pretty amazing. And of course, AI is playing a role in diagnostics in many settings, and I think can democratize our insights uh, at very low cost. So as AI gets integrated into care, it's about who pays for it, who regulates it, you know, how we can make sense of that to really optimize smart prevention, early diagnostics, and much more personalized therapy. It's also going to be playing much more of a role in our future of therapeutics. AlphaFold, which was sort of launched last year, uh, can do a pretty amazing job at predicting and optimizing protein folding. And we're seeing AI already being used to help develop the next generation of vaccines. And we've seen companies like, like InSilico develop all in silico on a computer targets, develop and discover APIs and bring them to clinical trials in less than two years. So really, we're going to see the acceleration of pharma using AI. And that's going to be disruptive to our friends in pharma, thankfully, frankly, and how they uh, roll up and develop their technology sets and, and how drugs get developed. So watch that space. Now, part of the future of devices, pharma, orthopedics and beyond is how we can kind of integrate and crowdsource data information. Think about 15 plus years ago, we were still driving with paper maps. And now today we couldn't imagine driving without Google Maps or Waze. Imagine we could sort of build these waves of orthopedics or musculoskeletal care, where each patient was contributing to the map and other patients and clinicians can find the journeys that were most relevant to your individual patient on their individual journey. I think that's kind of where we can go if we can think about ourselves and our healthcare systems and beyond. It's not just you know holding on to data, not just sharing things like being an organ donor or a blood donor, but becoming data donors. And I used to talk about those health ways for a while. About three years ago in Israel, I, I, they had a story about health ways and actually was introduced that year to one of the founder and team members of ways who had a medical issue in her family and actually developed what's basically a ways for healthcare. It's called Stuff That Works where you can go on with almost any condition, whether it's diabetes or cancer or psoriasis and find other patients like you and glean lessons from what's worked and not worked. Uh, it could be type two diabetes or I had plantar fasciitis. I found a whole community around plantar fasciitis. 
thousands of people sharing what worked or didn't work. So we're going to see this ability to crowdsource and find the most effective treatments that we'll use as patients as well as clinicians. So check out stuffthatworks.health as a good example of this early ways for healthcare. Another thing that's obviously shifted dramatically and been catalyzed by COVID is how we interact with our patients. We've all done our, our first uh, virtual visits. And this opens the door to really shift our model from what we've sort of been doing for eons, sick care, to one of true continuous healthcare. And of course, our sick care model is very based on very intermittent episodic data, usually only collected in the four walls of the clinic. That leads to our usual reactive mindset. We tend to wait for the patient to show up with a heart attack, a stroke, or my world of oncology, a late stage cancer, or for a, a fall or hip implant to have an issue. The future is, of course, to bring distributed care from healthcare, from hospital to home to phone to on and even inside our bodies. And by 2037, we're certainly going to be an era where it's going to be care anywhere, anytime. And we'll have moved dramatically from hospital to hospital. We're already in that era now, catalyzed by new reimbursement models for remote patient monitoring. And that will bring us to the future of continuous monitoring that's personalized, proactive, and brings care anytime, anywhere, arguably can give us much better costs much better outcomes at lower cost and democratize access and health equity. Now, when you think about virtual visits and telemedicine today, it's still pretty much, you know, FaceTime, Zoomy type interactions on our smartphone. Increasingly, that's going to be supplanted or started with platforms where your chatbot will intervene. It's Sydney Care from Anthem, for example. I know you've got Anthem there, it's done a great job. Uh, Ada, uh, Babylon, all examples where we can start to get better and better personalized advice from a, a chatbot. And when you do interact with your patient, we may be doing that in augmented reality ways that feel like you're in the same room. So again, from the metaverse to the metaverse. So don't have a failure of imagination of how our virtual and clinical experiences uh, might blend together. A lot of our virtual care will be augmented with the equivalent of a, of a medical tricorder. Uh, you can already go to a Best Buy today and buy a Tito Care kit to kind of augment a virtualized exam to help your patient or a family member listen in the heart, heart lungs EKG, et cetera, that will dramatically uh, integrate into virtual care going forward. We're in the world of underwearables, where your patient, particularly after an orthopedic procedure, might go home with a pack of 10 of these little sensors. I, I met Spire at DocSF a few years ago. They started as a consumer device, but now with new reimbursement codes, they're into remote patient monitoring, whether it's for respiratory disease or beyond. So this internet of medical things is getting super, super interesting. And as we have this internet of medical things, and as, you, as we pay more attention to the social determinants of health, I think we also need to pay a, a comment on the digital determinants of health. Do your patients have access to a data plan? Do they have uh, Wi-Fi? Do they have good battery life? All those are critical. Uh, we see today many parts of the US and the world still don't have access to regular internet, let alone high speed. But with the launch of Starlink and similar platforms, the 50% of the world population that doesn't have regular internet and worldwide web access today will have that. So opening up huge new markets in the next two, five, 10, and 15 years. So now with our crazy new world of internet of medical things, riding 5G and certainly 6 and 7G by 2037, we have the opportunity to make massive amounts of data. We already have massive amounts of data today that's often over-siloed, hard to manage. We're missing the insights. A big need going forward is not just to have more data, but to really accelerate going from data to insights and knowledge and when insights and knowledge is gleaned to narrow that gap to what we use at the bedside or at the website, right? We've seen COVID accelerate our ability to learn and innovate in the ICU and share that knowledge in the COVID setting. I think we need to narrow that usual 17-year gap 
to almost be instantaneously. So I'm hoping by 2037, when something's published or when you look at a trial, it's going to be continually updated from a data lake. It'll be this, the best integrated knowledge set that's applied to you in real time. So part of that new future takes new forms of collaboration, you know, unsiloing different players. I've, for the last two years, chaired the XPRIZE Pandemic Alliance. Now it's the Pandemic and Health Alliance. It's partly data powered, but the theme of this alliance is that if we're going to address the challenges of the pandemic, from PPE to diagnostics to testing to mental health, it's a, a collaborative sport and we need all players to come together. So we've built this XPRIZE Pandemic Alliance. So some of you can now health alliance can join that going into the future to help solve for these sorts of challenges. Uh, so uh, check out covid19.xprize.org if you'd like to be part of that alliance. And part of what we do is bring people together, but also do smart incentives. A year or so ago, rapid, fast, frequent, cheap, and easy COVID testing was not available. We ran a $6 million XPRIZE to stimulate new thinking around diagnostics, had over 700 entries from 77 countries. And the winners are developed pretty amazing ways to not just diagnose COVID, but other infectious and non-infectious diseases. And one thing that the pandemic has accelerated is all of us and many of our patients having done their first home diagnostics. So diagnostics is going to be unleashed in new powerful ways. And that brings us to an era of quantified health, not just quantified self. We all, many of us are data geeks wearing multiple devices. Where we're going to be in the next few years is going to shift from quantified selfers, where our data is siloed on our smartphone, but to one of quantified health, where our data is from our patients will almost continuously flow to ourselves and our healthcare systems. And so we'll use that to optimize prevention, diagnostics, and therapy. And we'll have learned from billions of data points. You might have heard of Verily's uh, all of a baseline trial where thousands of volunteers are sharing their digital exhaust and medical records to make sense of digital exhaust. You may have heard of the, the NIH All of Us trial where a million Americans are sharing their wearable data, their genomics, their medical records. That will build a much better map for us to do true smart predictive analytics, building a bit of an integrated FICO score for each of our patients' actual health. So that can give us a leverage point to, to measure and change. Just like our modern cars have 500 sensors or more in many cases, each of our patients will be integrating data streams that will give us that early check engine light so we can be proactive with their, with their care. And there's examples of this already. Mike Snyder at Stanford, one of the most quantified guys on the planet, has uh, diagnosed his own Lyme disease and diabetes using sort of this integrated platform. They were able to show that using a smartwatch, you could diagnose who had COVID when they were still asymptomatic. So small examples of these check engine lights are coming here today. And by 2037, will certainly be the norm. Another part of this quantified self world will be to truly personalize our interventions and therapeutics. You know, think about our drugs and many of our procedures today. They're pretty much one size fits all. Part of our future will be not to take a, a pile of meds that are, you know, based on the average patient, but to 3D print your personalized medication. So I've been developing a technology called telemedicine to 3D print your pills. It might be a combination of aspirin, statin, beta blocker, synthroid, vitamin D. Some meds might need to change each day, like Coumadin or Lasix. And eventually, by 2037, for sure, you'll have your home medicine printer that will print the medications that you or your patient need in the right combination and the right doses. So that's a bit of the future of pharmacy that we're building today. Of course. One of our challenges when we're prescribing orthopedic intervention or a medical one is adherence. We're seeing a lot of new focus on smart digital coaching, whether it's a human on the end of the line or an AI or a chatbot. We're seeing this evolution of the ability to engage the patient, patients included. Uh, that really uh, improves outcomes and care. And our avatars and chatbots 
are increasingly matching the individual based on their age, their culture, their language. You talked about gamification. You can now use these chatbots in ways to optimize engagement. And sometimes someone wants points or badges or other knowledge. Of course, voice can be interaction for coaching. Voice is, is going well beyond the Amazon Alexa. It's coming to the operating room. It's coming to the hospital room. We're leveraging, of course, as you've talked about, augmented reality in a whole new set of ways, whether you're in the operating room or increasingly using these to blend ways. This is an old version from Augmented to guide orthopedic procedures. So I think we're in the early innings of being able to blend clinical data inside the, the orthopedic and other experience. And I'm excited to see where AR and VR will take us. Of course, virtual reality is great to put grandma on a roller coaster, but VR is really, as my friend Brennan Spiegel at Cedar sinai says, is really a syringe uh, for all sorts of therapeutic applications, for treating pain. The whole New York Times article uh, just the other day about virtual reality is a very effective modality for treating pain, both acute and chronic. It's being used increasingly in physical therapy to get your patients engaged and gamified doing their PT. And you know how many people don't do their physical therapy very well. It's being used as exercise. I spent 100 days straight in the Supernatural app early in the pandemic doing virtual workouts and my resting heart rate went down by 10 points. So lots of ways that VR will be engaged in PT, physical therapy and exercise and be more and more smartly integrated using quantification uh, going forward. And so all of this is particularly exciting. I think AR, VR can make your patients more comfortable to whether they're in a procedure room, they might be at the beach, all the way to adding scent and other modalities on top of VR to make these things super, super real, or giving them the ability to show a patient inside their body, whether it's for brain surgery or orthopedic surgery to understand the procedure ahead of time going forward. And of course, VR is going to be transforming medical education. There's many examples I'd like, like virtual heart at Stanford, obviously the amazing work from Oso VR. So our, the way we train C1, do one, teach one will be supplanted by C1, SIM1, SIM1 until you get it right. And of course, this begs the question, as you've been talking about today, and how will AI and robotics integrate into this future of surgical specialties? I think we're going to start to build a bit of a, a ways for interventionalists, right? We're going to be learning from thousands of surgeries and providing guidance in real time as you go through a procedure, kind of like that ways for healthcare. Today, we already see platforms like Proximy give you the ability to have smart coaching. So you can go across the planet and basically have your hands and eyes within a procedure as a master surgeon to help someone who's doing a first-time procedure or, or stuck. I think we're going to see that sort of integration be more and more AI-guided. And of course, we're not going to fully replace the surgeon. We'll kind of be going more from driver assist to surgeon assist as we move into this uh, fast-paced fast age. You've already been talking about robotics today, so I'll speed through that. Uh, I just seen some interesting uh, examples of humanized robotics trying to build the, the avatar eventually. And I believe certainly in the next decade, you'll be able to strap yourself inside of a virtual avatar. I got a chance myself to try this at CES, put on the headset, put on the gloves, and I poured it inside this robot. I can shake hands. I can move around. I can see what the robot is seeing. Imagine when this will enable you to transport yourself into a clinic or into an operating room or into a clinic in, in rural Alaska or rural Africa. I think we're at the beginning ages of this. And these robots will be more and more enhanced with AGI and machine learning to be able to act more autonomously. So bottom line, this will start to upskill each of us, right? 50% of clinicians are below, below average, none of us, of course. And we'll start to see the ability to blend what robotics can do with what humans can do. And you know, I think we'll enter a really interesting golden age of intervention. And that will hopefully democratize access to surgery and high quality surgery around the planet. Let me finish off with the last couple of examples. The brain, right? Lots of new ways the brain is being shaped by technology in good and bad ways. We're now seeing apps that are FDA cleared to help uh, treat 
kids with ADHD with an app instead of a drug. We're seeing the application of digital health platforms for ADHD to PTSD to depression, something that's ramped up in need certainly during the pandemic. And we're even seeing the use of FTA cleared psychedelics to treat PTSD and other disorders. So a brand new age of neuroscience in the brain going forward. And speaking of you know small devices and quantify itself, uh, we are going to enter by 2037. Many of us may be walking around with implants in our brains. You've certainly uh, heard of Elon Musk's Neuralink. And I think with his recent announcement of buying Twitter, one of the applications may be able to tweet directly from your brain. And that's not science fiction uh, because a company has demonstrated the ability to deliver a implant intravascularly to the brain of a patient who's locked in. And he, uh, this patient who's paralyzed has been able to do a tweet just from his mind using a BCI technology. So the future is coming a bit faster than you think and will uh, be a few leaps more forward uh, the next decade. Last element, 3D printing. There's lots of great applications for 3D printing, as you know, in orthopedics, to making prosthetics, uh, to making devices for patients that match their, their need and their aesthetics, all the way to 3D printing, maybe orthopedic devices, the space station, uh, or on Mars, where we will hopefully be by 2037. So I think uh, 3D printing is getting fascinating, including the ability to build personalized robotics for rehab on patients who have uh, muscle and other issues. One area that 3D printing used to think that we might address was that of the organ shortage. You know, when I gave my TED talk uh, 10, 11 years ago, we used to think, oh, we'll have 3D printed organs in a decade or so now. We haven't quite reached that reality, but that reality may be supplanted now by our ability to do genetic modification, CRISPR modification of pigs to humanize them. You've probably heard in the news recently that we can now humanize pigs. And given the organ shortage, you might be waiting for an organ. And it, while it might not be kosher, you'll take that organ that from a humanized pig. It's been demonstrated in kidneys and just in January with a humanized heart. I can imagine other orthopedic related tissues might be coming from humanized pigs as we go into that future. And of course, the ability to do stem cell biology, this is Shian Yamanaka, who won the Nobel Prize for developing induced pluripotent stem cells, is going to play a super interesting role across medicine, I think, in orthopedics and musculoskeletal care as well, because we're going to start to be able to develop almost any tissue from our own or donor-induced pluripotent stem cell lines. And that's going to play a role in tissue engineering, uh, particularly in 3D bioprinting for surgical implants. This is some work recently published on 3D printed cartilage constructs from stem cells which could potentially be used to repair large cartilage defects. So that's going to be a blending of 3D printing and next-generation stem cell biology. This was published recently, interoperative bioprinting. In this case, cells and other uh, units to fill up large defects and stimulate proper bone growth. In this case, spines and neurosurgery. But I would think this is going to play a role in many elements of orthopedics as well. Now, I'm a bone marrow transplant doctor by training, so I do have bone in that description. There is a lot of use, as you know, for using bone marrow as an osteobiologic. As a bone marrow transplant fellow at Stanford, I was frustrated getting out bone marrow the old-fashioned way. So I invented a device called the marrow miner. It's then doing serial aspirates. We have a device that can enter the bone marrow in a single puncture under local anesthesia and enable you to harvest bone marrow uh, very quickly and seamlessly. And my hope is that in the orthopedic space, you'll be able to use this procedure and this device to harvest bone marrow in a very minimally invasive way. The idea here is, again, one entry into the bone marrow cavity and a bit of a rotor-rooter device that can rapidly aspirate marrow, very high quality numbers of cells very, very quickly that you could use for spine fusions, osteobiologics, et cetera. So if you all are interested in seeing that uh, technology, here it is, it's FDA cleared in, in humans. We get a lot more cells out much more quickly, including CFUs than you would in a normal aspirate. So we're building the ortho minor version of that in the future. So contact me of, of interest.
and I'm going to skip Chris Byrne because there's so much excitement going in that space and just close to say that I think this amazing health age is upon us. It's imperative in whatever field we're in, in orthopedics and beyond to think about this future, not through the lens of any one technology, but through this convergence of many fast moving and sometimes exponential technologies. It's our opportunity to leverage that mindset and these technology stacks to move from where we've been in our world of intermittent episodic physical sick care to one that's continuous, proactive, can be virtualized, personalized, crowdsourced, and AI enhanced. And that if we find ourselves here, not just in 2022, we can leverage the mindset of what will be here in 2032 and 2037 to really build not just a future of healthcare that's you know fancy and high tech, but one that's democratized and one that can really access anybody on the planet. And a part of that, of course, is not just about the technology, it's about our mindsets. I love this old quote, the difficulty lies not in the old ideas, but often not the difficulty lies in the new ideas, but often in the old ideas. So we need to help ourselves and our colleagues branch out and unleash ourselves from where we may have been hindered in the past. So let's not take incremental steps. Let's take exponential ones. The future is already here. It's up to all of us, not just to predict that future, but to boldly create the future of health, medicine, and orthopedics together. So thanks for your time and attention. Sorry, I couldn't be there in person, there in person today, but hope to meet, interact with many of you in the near future. Thanks. Have a great day and rest of DocSF. So a couple things there. Did I tell you the guy has like all sorts of gadgets uh, whenever we travel together or we go give talks? He's like the magician who's just always pulling stuff out of his pockets and like pulling things over here. And let me show you the back. Yeah, it's fun. That's great. Um, yeah. And please do follow him. And again, I, it was, it's fun. It was lis listening to him. I'm realizing he really does not feel well. Yeah. That is not his voice. But Very it, grateful they took the time to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that, that was good to do. And I'm sorry that you're not here to spend more time with him. But do follow him on Twitter and LinkedIn. He's active and always got a lot of really good things that he's pointing people to. So, yeah, that's a good place to follow. We hope you enjoyed this presentation and will consider joining us live in San Francisco for DocSF 2023 when we will explore how digital technologies will enhance, support, and enable the expansion of the outpatient surgery arena. Register now to join our mailing list at docsf.health, docsf.health, and be the first to access our limited tickets. DocSF, join the revolution.